And how are y'all guys? How are y'all doing? Yeah. Okay. Good. I'm on. Here we go. Uh, my name is Marco. I'm the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Thank y'all so much for joining us for worship this morning. Uh, man, I got a couple of things for you. I actually would love to just dive right into our time uh, because we're going to be looking at a lot of scripture today. Uh, and if you have been with us over the past couple of weeks, uh, we just started a sermon series uh, on the book, The Song of Solomon. We're titling it, or we have titled it, Asking for a Friend, because he addresses a ton of things that you would normally submit questions to and end with, I'm asking for a friend. Uh, and so if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open up to the Song of Songs. Uh, we're going to be starting in chapter 3, verse 6, and we're going to be working our way through chapter 5, verse 1. As you do that, i just got a couple of things for you. Uh, number one, if you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles before you in the rows that you're seated in. Please take one. That's our gift to you. Uh, in addition to that, if you are new, if you've been hanging out with us for uh, today's your first time, or you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, there are some connect cards on the chairs before you. Fill one out. Check it. Here's what we got going on. Sometime in October, we'll give you more details later on. In October, I believe it's going to be the 20th, we're going to be having a new visitor's lunch. This is an opportunity for us to get to hang out with you. And so if you are new or you did not attend our members class and you just want to get to know us a little bit more, put that on the connect card, drop it in the offering basket or take it to the back connect area and they'll hook you up with more details. Registration for all that will start later on. Uh, we're going to be studying the Bible. That's what we're going to do. All right. So we're going to, again, we're going to be looking at Song of Songs, chapter three, verse six, working our way through chapter five, verse one. As I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of scripture to look at. I'm really looking forward to this. Over the past couple of weeks, we've kind of addressed some, maybe some awkward things. And uh, today we're going to, we're going to make it even more awkward because, because I love that. I, I, you're going to, I could tell, like, I think oftentimes people don't necessarily know that I can see. And so when people start to get squeamish, they sit up straight, like I've made you uncomfortable outside of preaching the gospel. I've met my goal. And so, uh, I'd like to pray and then we'll, we'll dive into our time this morning. God, as we prepare ourselves uh, to dive in, investigate, and examine your word for us, my prayer is that you would meet us where we're at, meet us in the pages of Scripture, reveal yourself to us, and reveal man, your pursuit for us in Christ. God, those that don't know who you are, I pray that they would come to know Jesus this morning. I pray that they would be convicted of their sins and that their hearts would be made new. God, for those who do know Jesus, I pray that they would come to know him better, that they too would be convicted of their sin, that their minds would be renewed, their hearts transformed, and ultimately surrender to your good grace. God, I pray that you would set me aside and Holy Spirit, that it would be you at work through me and that it would be you at work in the hearts and minds of my friends in here uh, this morning. God, may your name be praised this morning. Whether we look at all the practical stuff and even some of the challenging stuff, may your name be the one that is praised this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, y'all ready? All right, here we go. So, I remember my wedding day. I'm going to start with this. I, I remember my wedding day because it was awesome, and I remember it vividly, right? I remember um, it was on a Saturday morning, and for me, it was kind of like business as usual in the sense that uh, I, got to, I got to plan our wedding. 
before diving into ministry, I worked for the city of McAllen and we put on a ton of events. So event planning was kind of in my background. And at the same time, I wanted uh, my bride-to-be, my wife-to-be, to not necessarily worry about any of that because event planning was pretty cool. Regardless, Saturday morning comes. It's the day of our wedding. I wake up, and Saturday mornings were always dedicated to workouts with my friends. And so all we did was just invite more people to come work out with us. And so we went to the gym. We did our thing. We even had breakfast and celebrated. Oh, today's going to be a wonderful day. Uh, We went back home. We hung out. All of these cool things. But at the same time, it was very ordinary. And then time came for us to get ready, right? Putting on the ties, making sure the collars look good, all that stuff. And we had to go to this church in Far where uh, it was like really scenic. And so we took pictures and I was blindfolded so that I wouldn't see my bride and all of these things. And everybody's like, hold her hand, stand still, do this, sit down, all this stuff. And, and it was cool. And so we get to the venue and a friend of ours tells us, uh, hey, there's not really a green room here at the venue. So the biggest room we're going to give to uh, Rebecca, that's my wife, uh, we're going to give it to her so that she can get ready. You and your friends are going to go ahead and get ready in the bathroom. And, uh, and we were cool with that. It was like, fine, because we were listening to Tupac and Rage Against the Machine. We we're just hanging out, right? Just getting ready, right? All you hear is these like, everybody singing in the bathroom. Finally, a friend of mine comes in and he says, hey, it's time says it's time, we come out, and throughout this whole time, I'm really just seeing this day, or at the very least up until now, it's just kind of like, yeah, it's an event, and I'm excited, and yes, I'm going to get married, but I get it, like I know what's coming up. We get in line for the ceremony, and one of the guys brings my mom, and my mom's crying, she's in tears, right, I'm one of four boys, I'm the baby of the family, and so she comes to me in tears, and she's like, I'm so excited, and I remember even asking my mom, like, why, you're going to see me tomorrow, like, it'll be fine, whatever. So we get in line, we go down, uh, and we're waiting at, uh, I guess, what would be like the altar at the end of the venue, and so the music's coming, the people are walking, and then Rebecca's song comes on, right? And, and her song comes on, and she still hasn't come and made her way around the corner. And I'm still there standing with my friends like, we got this. This event was awesome. And as she makes her way around the corner, and throughout all of this, I'm really just standing uh, in confidence. But it could, I think confidence would be the polite way of saying it, but really just standing in arrogance in light of the planning of this illustrious event. And as she makes her way around the corner, it was like, <gasps> all these like tears rush to my eyes, and I just melt and I'm immediately humbled, like this is my bride, and all of this stuff that uh, I wasn't feeling before that all of a sudden happened. And, and regardless of what went right or what even went wrong on that day, when I saw her turn the corner, it was like, <laughs> you know, you couldn't breathe. It was that kind of thing. And, and even one of the guys like, hey, man, you're all right. Like, shut up. You know, like, just, you're just trying to like keep it together. And so my bride comes, and eventually we get married, and it was, and it was wonderful, Right? That's what we're going to be talking about today, right? That's what we're going to be talking about. You see, weddings are a big deal. You can put that on the table. Weddings are a big deal. They're just not the biggest deal. I'm not saying you shouldn't plan for one. I'm not saying you shouldn't go big or go home. I'm not saying that. But what I want you to know is that it's really just a glimpse of the gospel. That doesn't mean you shouldn't plan for it. That doesn't mean that, you know, maybe, I don't know, you got married in your backyard, whatever. It's still a glimpse of the gospel. 
It's a glimpse of Christ pursuing his bride, the church, and a promise that one day he will reclaim her. And people who are in attendance get to see that, get to see a glimpse, get to see a picture of what happened in Eden. And this morning, beginning with this first section, that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about the wedding day. And then we're going to be talking about the wedding night. And so if you've got your Bibles, as I mentioned, we've got a lot of Scripture to, to, to walk through. Let's go to Song of Songs, beginning in chapter 3, verse 6. Here's what I'll, I'll do. This is what I've been doing. I'm gonna, this time I'm going to read verses 6 through 11, and then kind of tell you what we're talking about, and then give you a couple of things to chew on. Here we go. Beginning in verse 6. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are sixty mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war. Each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding on the day of the gladness of his heart. Here's what's going on. It's wedding day, right? You could maybe even look at it this way, that that Solomon's kind of made all of this happen because homeboy's got some cash. And so he's made all of this happen. He talks about the bed. He's talking about the people that are coming down. He's got 60 dudes, 60 groomsmen with like swords ready to go. The color purple is an indicator of how wealthy he was because even purple was more rare than gold and silver. So this dude has planned it all. He's paid for it all. He's waiting for his bride. He's like, yeah, I got this. This is really cool. And then she makes her way down the aisle. So that's what's, that's what's going on. And so I want you to know two things in this section. And we'll dive a little bit more into these verses as we move forward. But I want you to know two things. I want you to know godly pursuit requires, it doesn't suggest, but it requires godly character. Godly pursuit is number one. That requires godly character. A great wedding is not an indicator of a great marriage. Godly pursuit is. A great wedding is not an indicator of a great marriage. Godly pursuit is. You see, in this picture, we're getting uh, the, 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 the story, the fantasy of, of the bride making her way down the aisle, the groom waiting for her. And more than anything, it ought to teach us, it ought to show us, it ought to reflect to us this picture of God pursuing his bride. And so as we dive into this section of the wedding... We need to know that marriage is beautiful. But marriage is also difficult. Marriage is difficult because oftentimes, here's what we're going to see in this section. We are seeing a a, a covenantal unity. But what makes marriage difficult for us is often that we view marriage as a contract rather than a covenant. 
What makes marriage difficult is that the husband and the wife oftentimes do not want to deny themselves. They do not want to sacrifice. They don't want to sacrifice their pride. They don't want to sacrifice their needs for the sake of one another. Because again, oftentimes marriages are viewed as contracts. And if you think about it, we live in contract culture, right? You want to join a gym, you sign a contract. You want a new cell phone, you, join a, you sign a contract. You want Wi-Fi at your house, you sign a contract. Everything ultimately becomes a contract rather than a covenant. And what we are seeing here is this picture of not only the gospel, but we are seeing this picture of covenantal unity. Covenantal unity as a result of godly pursuit. This will be proven, this godly pursuit will be proven in the coming verses and based off of what we've already looked at in the Song of Songs by how he speaks life into her, how he protects her, how he affirms her, and how he ultimately provides for her. Further, godly pursuit is best displayed here in how he protects her and how he provides for her. Sure, on one end, everything is paid for. He wants her to know that she's taken care of. She's got nothing to worry about. But at the same time, there is godly protection. She has 60 men surrounding her, each one with a sword, each one ready to go to bat so that she is protected. Godly pursuit requires godly character. Godly pursuit displays a sermon of the gospel and it displays protection and provision. The second thing we look at is that his character is affirmed. Look at the last couple of verses. The last couple of verses... He says, go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. His mom's there. And as his bride makes her way down, what the mom is doing, or what his mom is doing, is that she is passing the torch over to her. Her care for him is now being given to his bride-to-be. But in addition to that, What's important is that not only his mom's there, but their friends are there. And so his character is being publicly affirmed. And as a result, here's what you need to know about character. That just because you're doing everything right doesn't make you godly. Just because you're doing everything right doesn't mean you're godly. See, when we start talking about character, particularly among men, we start thinking about skills that we need to acquire. But when it comes to godly character, there aren't skills that you acquire. It's the development of the condition of your heart based upon the circumstances or seasons that you find yourself in and how well you respond to them. Character is developed in those seasons and in those circumstances. Your application of what you know about the gospel and what is true about God matters in those seasons so that your character is developed. Your character is at the heart 
of who you are. So it's not based on skills. It's based on seasons. It's not based on how highly you think of yourself, but what others think about you. Earlier in chapter 1, she goes on to talk about his character and how his reputation is known among the people. Character involves being thought of well, according to 1 Timothy 3, being thought of well by outsiders. Additionally, character is also developed behind closed doors. Are you the same person that people see when all the things are good to go? Just because you're doing everything right in front of people doesn't make you godly. Character is developed in seasons and how well we respond to them with the use of the gospel. So the wedding day teaches us two things. It teaches us godly pursuit, or it teaches us one big thing. That godly pursuit requires, it does not suggest, it requires godly character. And so with that, he is being affirmed, she is being affirmed between friends and family, and we go into the wedding night. This is where it gets weird. Well, for you, not for me. Beginning in chapter 4. Same thing. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to tell you what's going on, and then I want us to look at five principles of what it means to become one flesh. Okay? Here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, oh, real quick. So up until now, she has been the one who talks first. She's been the one who has spoken the most. In chapter 4, it's him speaking. He is the one speaking. She responds one time. Later on, we will see her address this even further. For right now, it's the groom. Here we go. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behind your veil, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ooze that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins. And not one among them has lost its young. Here's what he's saying. The first thing he tells her is, man, you are so beautiful. I love you. You're so beautiful. Your hair is like goat's hair. That sounds like an insult. But what he is saying is, as the goats come down this side of the mountain of Gilead, what he is saying is, man, how their hair shines, that's how beautiful your hair shines. It's like watching a Pantene Pro V commercial. Your hair just shines, right? Like he's t- That's what he's telling her. And then he goes on to say, what I also love about you is that you got all your teeth. Like, that's awesome. I love that you have all your teeth, right? Because this is before the days of dentistry. And so, uh, man, she's, she's taking care of her teeth. He's like, I love your smile. And she's like, why? Because you got all your teeth, right? That's cool. <laughs> Verse 3. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. So he's complimenting her lips and how beautiful they look. She has rosy red cheeks like that of a pomegranate. He's complimenting her neck. This dude has a thing for necks. So he's like, man, your neck is beautiful. It's awesome, and I love you. And then he keeps going. 
right? This is where we're going to park on purpose. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Here are three translations of that verse based on which one you land on. Tells me how weird you are. Here we go. The first one, when he is complimenting, let me back up. He's complimenting his wife. He's not objectifying his wife. This is in a moment of privacy. After the wedding, this is him and her together. So he's not objectifying her. First translation is when he says your two breasts are like two, uh, what, uh, fawns? Where am I? <clears throat> yeah, two fawns. Some will say, oh, what, what he means is he's talking about the old covenant and the new covenant. That's weird. If that's you, you're weird. Some will say, as he compliments her, some will say, right, got it. Breasts, two twin fawns or two baby, uh, two baby deer. What he's thinking about is fertility. He's thinking about kids in the future, right? He sees a future with her. It's not just the intimacy that they're about to experience. He's also thinking about family ahead. Okay, you could, sure. I don't think you'd be wrong. The third one, right? He says, you can read it again because I love this. He says, your two breasts are like two fawns, right? Fawns are baby deer. If you ever seen a baby deer, you don't tackle it, right? See if you follow with me. You don't tackle it, right? You're not rough with a baby deer. You're gentle with a baby deer. Now, you, I'm going to let your mind go for it, right? He's talking about being gentle with her. He's not objectifying his wife. He's not insulting his wife. He's not treating her like she's not an individual, a person, someone made in God's image. We've seen since chapter one, he has affirmed her character. He has spoken uh, words of wisdom and life into her in light of even her insecurity. And here we are on the wedding day where he has provided for her. She even goes on to say that his banner is one of love so that she is protected under him. And here we see the wedding night that they're about to enjoy one another. Therefore, he's not objectifying her. That's a very vulnerable place to be. And they have created that space of vulnerability through their pursuit of one another. And so he's talking about being gentle. Moving on. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana and, and from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. Right? So he uses language that she used last week, if you remember, when she said not yet. Now he is using language suggesting, hey, it is time. It is time for love to be awakened. And I am calling you wherever it is that you're at. I can smell you. I can see you. I can't wait for us to be with you. Last week we looked at that and her response was, not yet. Don't rush this, right? We're not going to awaken love. Here we are the wedding night. He quotes half of her and says, it is time. It is ready for us to be one. And he continues. Verse 10. Excuse me, verse 9. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. We'll talk about that later. Uh, you have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. 
How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils and any spice. She smells good. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choices fruits. Henna with nard, nard with saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water, flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow up my garden, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. So he's a her, he's complimenting her, he's talking about how good she smells, how good she looks, and he's closing off with, so we're gonna, we're gonna do this, right? And then she uh, responds, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. He responds, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride, I gathered my myrrh with my spice, I ate my honeycomb with milk, excuse me, with uh, my honey, I drank my wine with my milk, Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. A lot of scripture, okay? Here we go. Here are five principles, five results, whatever you want to, word you want to use. That focus, let's do it this way. Five gifts that focus on becoming one. The first one is the standard of beauty. In short, here's what I mean, and then I'll unpack that. Your spouse is your standard of beauty. Who she is, who he is, today is your standard of beauty. Not who they were five years ago, 10 years ago, 25 years ago. Who they are today is your standard of beauty. He proves this. He proves this by being incredibly specific for his love towards his bride. He's not comparing her to anyone. He is speaking to her alone. And he makes everything about her. He speaks of her character. He speaks of her beauty. He speaks words of wisdom and life into her. He is not looking to the left or to the right, but straight ahead at his bride. Your spouse is your standard of beauty. That's number one. Number two, one of the gifts of becoming one is, is intimacy. What we see in the Song of Songs is that their love for one another is authentic because it is selfless. It is selfless. That is, that they are giving themselves to one another completely, wholeheartedly, and in utter vulnerability. For many, love is an idol. Love is an idol because marriage, as I mentioned earlier, is often viewed as a contract rather than a covenant. I'm going to give, therefore I'm going to get. Some walk into a marriage with expectations of the other individual that are ridiculously high or oftentimes unspoken. 
And when we do that, what we're trying to communicate are two huge needs, and that is the need of security and significance. And so we put that pressure on one another, and because either one cannot deliver, we're constantly disappointed. We're constantly disappointed. We're constantly at odds with one another, all because at the end of the day, love is an idol. Love is an idol, and it manifests itself, or the way it manifests itself is in the relationship It's more of a contract than it is a covenant. It's more of a contract than it is a covenant. See, because the truth is the only way to find satisfaction in one another is to first find security and significance in Christ. Once that happens, then there's an outpouring of what God in Christ has done for us first. I've sat in counseling appointments where the majority of the time it's unspoken expectations, unrealistic expectations, expectations that may not even be biblical, all because many believe that this is, I'm going to give, therefore I'm going to get. I've signed this contract, therefore give me my services and or goods. And as a result, what ends up happening, because love is this idol, resentment begins to develop, bitterness begins to develop, and it begins to spill over into your life individually, and it begins to spill over into your relationships, and in particular, your marriage. All because the husband and the wife do not want to love one another selflessly. Listen to Ephesians 5. I'm just going to uh, breeze through this. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and himself the Savior. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, cleanse her, and wash her with the word so that she would be presented to himself in splendor. In Ephesians 5... I think oftentimes we'd rather be nitpicky about what is being said because we just don't like what is being said because what Paul is calling us to do or what Paul is challenging us to do is to love one another selflessly. That the husband is to constantly, daily die to himself. It's called called loving sacrificially. And that as the wife submits, there is this love for her because of what God has done in her. It is this cycle that ends up happening. The problem with this, we learned in Genesis 3, that for the woman, she's not going to want to be under the authority or submission to the husband, that she's actually want to control that. For the husband, it's that many men don't want to sacrifice because they're incredibly selfish and entitled not always, but nevertheless, it's one of the most common things. Real intimacy demands surrender to Jesus if it's going to be selfless. If intimacy is going to be selfless, then it demands surrender to Jesus. Number three, friendship. Friendship is often not talked about that much. 
But I do want to talk about it a little bit. Because he does say, uh, my sister and my bride. He's not saying that she's really her sister. But what he is saying in terms of that language of poetry, what he is saying is that she's like his best friend. Like they're that close. And so one of the things that is often not discussed is friendship. And friendship is massively important because it helps to develop our relationships. It helps to develop your marriage. It helps strengthen the physical and emotional connection. All of these little factors that come with friendship are indicators of the health of the marriage. Laughter, yeah, like how much you laugh with one another. Like, do you actually enjoy being with one another? That's an indicator of the health of the marriage. How you date one another. Oftentimes, when people get married, they're like, I've arrived. No, that's when the work starts and actually keeps going. In friendship, by how much time you spend with one another, laugh with one another, enjoy one another's company, what ends up being created and developed is vulnerability. It's vulnerability. And that is crazy scary. Because in vulnerability, you're each laying down your sword before one another. That space of vulnerability is actually going to increase the health of your relationships, or in particular, your marriage. Faithfulness increases the safety of vulnerability. Vulnerability is scary. I'm not knocking that. Some of you, when you think about being vulnerable, man, you want to bounce. That's not necessarily something you want. That means weakness. That means all sorts of things. However, in friendship, when vulnerability is created or when there's a space developed, there is safety in vulnerability. Some of you just don't want to talk about it because that means emotions or weakness or whatever. But really what you're losing out on is one of the fundamental gifts of becoming one. Number four, pleasure. He talks about her being a standard of beauty. And it's not just pleasure because it's one man and one woman in marriage. It's not just because of that, but it's because everything has been building up to this moment. He has been pursuing her. His character has been affirmed. She has been bluntly honest before him about her insecurity and what she thinks and where she's been. She's putting everything on the table. He has put everything on the table and they are pursuing one another. And so therefore, here we go, wedding night. Yeah, pleasure is going to be a part of it. But it is a buildup of what has been happening on the other side. This is where love is awakened and stirred. Not before. And number five, I want to park here for a little bit, purity. When you read verse 12, and I'll just read verse 12, he says, A garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that she has saved himself uh, for him. That she is a private park, or a private garden, not a public park. And that's one of great sensitivity. That's one of great sensitivity because for many, this might be you, you think about guilt and shame. What you shouldn't have done, what you could have done, what has happened, X, Y, and Z. There's guilt and shame when, when you hear or read a verse like that. For others, there might be pride and arrogance. Pride and arrogance in the sense of, look at what I haven't done, therefore look at how righteous I am. 
That's not what makes you godly, by the way. And so what is the remedy then for guilt? What is the remedy for shame? What is the remedy for pride? The remedy for guilt and pride is redemption. You see, God reveals himself in the pages of Scripture. He exposes your heart and invites you to come to know him and his love for you. You see, in Christ, you hear and you get to know that there is no condemnation for you any longer, that you are to go and sin no more. And it's not that your sexual sin didn't count. It counted so much that Jesus died for it on the cross. That is, that guilt, shame, or pride of your sin is now forgiven. It is paid for. It is done away with on the cross. In redemption, it is who you are in Christ that makes the biggest significance, not who you once were. And so I hope that's an encouragement. That the remedy for guilt and shame and pride is redemption. And it was so significant that Christ was nailed to the cross where he became those things. He bore your guilt. He bore your shame. He bore your pride. He became those things so that you might be cleansed. That is the beauty of redemption. And so at this point, kind of read through it all, and we'd kind of get to this place where it's like, okay, let's close it up but we're not going to. At the first week, one of the things that I shared with you was that the Song of Songs was uh, Solomon's uh, poem, his pursuit of his wife, before he jacked things up, right? And so we read through chapter four. We see his pursuit of her. We see how he affirms her. We see how he's gentle with her. We see how he loves her. We have seen how he has sacrificed, provided, and protected for her. We see how she responds to him. Here's the big question. What then happened to this dude? What happened to that guy that we read about in chapter four? If you got your Bible with you, let's go to 1 Kings chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. I'll read it, and then we'll dive in. Beginning in verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, uh, Sidonian, and the Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these people, or to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. 
Verse 8, and so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Verse 9, almost done. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. What happened to this dude? I really just want to talk about two things because we've looked at a lot of scripture, maybe three things, <laughs> just because we've talked about a lot of scripture. I think the first thing that happened was that rather than being a steward, he wanted to become an owner. In other words, a steward of what God has given him, caring for what God has given him, for what God has blessed him with, he wanted to be an owner. In other words, he wanted more. He wanted more. And as a result, his standard of beauty was now distorted because we never hear about his wife again. His standard of beauty was now distorted. I want you to listen to James 1. This is what he says. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin, it has fully grown, it brings forth death. Solomon was enticed by his sinful desire. Here's what I mean, just to be specific. That doesn't mean he was just tempted. Enticed means that he bit the bait. There's no excuse here. It's not like he didn't know. The Lord appeared to him twice, gave him what he wanted, which was wisdom beyond all measure. It's not like he didn't know. And so as he turned away from the Lord, he was enticed with his sinful desire. And so as a result, he became complacent to his sin. Here's another word, or another way of looking at it. He began to compromise. It's not like he didn't know what God had commanded him to do. It's not like he didn't know who God was and what God had done for his people. But he compromised. And so he waved a banner that many of us wave. He might have different reasons, but he still waved a banner of compromise. He waved the banner of compromise when it came to influence, that he married all of these other women so that he would gain political influence among the land, that he married these women so that he could have more power and other allies and ultimately increase his kingdom, that he married other women or had other women so that his status would be known among the nations so all those would see how good, powerful, and awesome he looked, all under the banner of compromise. Under the banner of compromise, he was not equally yoked. People, women that worshipped other gods, and he knew about them, rather than turning away, was enticed by it, and all waved under the banner of influence, power, status, money. The question would be, do you wave any banner of compromise? What is it? I don't know what it is, but that's a question for you. And here's the thing. As he waved this banner of compromise, it started getting deeper and deeper and deeper into his sin. So much that he built temples. Here's the thing. This is the dude that built the house of the Lord, the altar where God's presence dwelled. He built that. And then on the other side, this dude is building temples, buildings, facilities for other people's gods. He builds the temple for Chemosh. This was a god who, uh, according to history, required human sacrifice. 
that if they wanted victory over their enemies, it required human sacrifice. When we look at Molech, this was a god that they worshipped who required child sacrifice if you wanted to have money and wealth and provision. And see, here's the thing. We listen to this. We hear about complacency. We hear about compromise. We're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe Solomon did that. Are we really any different? Apart from the grace of God, are we really any different? Fine, might not have 700 wives, but there is a reason that 30% of the internet is porn. There's a reason that every second $3,000 are spent on porn. There is a reason that over 12 videos are made a week by the porn industry. There is a reason that the porn industry makes more than professional baseball, basketball, and football combined. There's a reason for that. So we could look at 1 Kings and be like, oh man, I would never do that. But then some are addicted to pornography. Therefore, their standard of beauty is distorted. Yeah, but I'm not married. Your standard of beauty is Christ. Are we really any different when it comes to child sacrifice? They called it worship. Today it's called choice. Is it really that different? Like, call, we got to call it what it is. There is a great extent that we will sadly accomplish when we turn away from the Lord and become complacent with our sin. And here's what's even scarier. Solomon is doing all this stuff and there is no suffering. He doesn't lose his money. There's no suffering. There isn't the consequence of his sin. He ruled for 40 years. He died around the age of 60. There isn't, there isn't suffering. Yet God was angry with Solomon. Just because you're doing good things, or just because you're doing the right things, doesn't make you right with God. Just because there's no lightning bolt, just because there is no conviction of sin, well, then God must be okay with it. No, there isn't, or he's not. He's still angry. That's the scary part, that oftentimes when we begin to talk about our own personal sin, we start to think about our consequences. But part of the reason that we become numb to sin is because we don't feel the consequences. Neither did Solomon. Neither did Solomon. And the Lord was angry with him. And he was not right with God. And so we fast forward to the, to the end of Solomon's life. And so what does he leave us with? Well, he leaves us with words of wisdom. He leaves us with words of wisdom. <clears throat> His words of wisdom are conviction of sin and repentance. I'll read through these very, very briefly. Proverbs 5, he's writing, uh, this is one of the Proverbs that he writes to his sons, and he says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful deer. He's saying, enjoy your wife. Have your eyes on her and only her. She is your standard of beauty. In Ecclesiastes 9, he says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. He's writing his repentance Solomon is saying, I wanted toilet water rather than the water God provides through his word. We talked about that week one, right? 
Like water from a cistern, water from a cistern. Like when you when you look at toilet water, like I mean it's clear. That doesn't make it clean. And what Solomon is saying is that's what I wanted. I'm telling you, that's not the water to go for. And he ends with the fear of the Lord. What is it that we can learn from Solomon? He says that it's the fear of the Lord. In Ecclesiastes 12, he ends with this. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. This is the guy who had it all. And here we are at the end of his life, putting it all on the table, saying, it wasn't worth it. Not only did I sin against the Lord, I turned my heart toward him or away from him, and I grew deep in my sin. Church, are you compromising? Are you compromising? That if you're not in a relationship, is the gospel something that's kind of secondary? Oh, you know, well, he or she does good things and they treat me good and all that. Is the gospel at the center of the pursuit? Godly pursuit requires godly character. If you're married... Is your pursuit of one another rooted in godly character? The kind of character that is found in the pages of Scripture. The kind of character that is developed in and out of season. Some of you may be married and you're like, man, my spouse doesn't know the Lord. God through Peter says that your conduct ought to be redemptive that they would see the beauty of God in Christ through you. So that's you. Keep serving. Keep loving. Keep being faithful. And so let's wrap this up. At the end of the day, what does this mean for us? Number one, it means that marriage points to Jesus. How does it point to Jesus? See, in a covenant, it's not just language. It is a commitment toward one another. What do you think Christ does for us? He commits to us. Faithfulness points to the person and work of Jesus because his, or excuse me, the faithfulness that we have in our covenant is based on his faithfulness, not ours. Marriage points to Jesus by how well we love one another. Why? Because there is a passionate love and pursuit from God as he sent his son to enter into human history as the man Jesus Christ to live the life that you and I cannot live, to die the death that you and I deserve to die, and freely offers us the grace that you and I cannot earn. Number two, Jesus redeems. As a result of what he has done on the cross, he renews hearts and forgives us of our sin, which means he cleanses us from unrighteousness. That means who you are is not who you used to be because of what Christ has done on the cross. And finally, guard the heart. Guard the heart. How do we guard the heart? Through communion with God. Every week we've been talking about communion with God. And sometimes, I know, because I've talked to many of you, and even myself included, oftentimes we think about communion with God, like, is there another remedy? Is there something else I can do? No. There is not another remedy for communion with God. Intentional time spent in his word, growing in godliness, growing in our worship and love and adoration and devotion for him, growing in his word, in prayer, meditating on what he has revealed to us. I got nothing else. That is 
communion with God. Communion with God in biblical community or authentic community. That means allowing others to speak wisdom into our life. And we talked about this week one. Well, how do we speak wisdom into our life? By breathing gospel-centered words, language, and verses into one another. Not just verses. But by breathing the gospel into one another. Yes, it's going to be awkward. Sometimes I know people will share, like, hey, this is what's going on. Man, that sucks. Maybe in part, that's part of what you say, because maybe it is really difficult. And you speak the gospel into one another. Why is it so secondary to us? We speak the gospel into one another. The work of God in Christ renews our hearts, it shapes how we live, and it impacts our relationships today. Let's pray. God, as we have uh, looked at the, the Song of Songs, um, it has been... Um, It has certainly been a fun three weeks, but it has also been a challenging couple of weeks. It's been a challenging couple of weeks because, uh, man, your word has proven true where you say that, uh, man, your word penetrates our hearts. It penetrates us deeper and harder than, uh, uh, than anything else. That it is a, that is like a sword penetrating our bone and marrow. That it exposes the condition of our hearts. God, I pray that that would be the truth today, that your word has exposed our hearts. And as a result, as a result, we would turn to you in faith, that we would repent of our sin, that we would surrender ourselves before you and believe the work that you've done for us in Christ. That we would be reminded of your redemptive grace. That we would be reminded of your transformational grace. That whether we're married or single, we would embrace strongly, tightly the gospel of Jesus Christ. That when it comes to uh, giving ourselves completely, that it would begin with what Christ has done for us, and that is that he has given himself completely, totally, and wholly, and he displayed it for us on the cross. May we embrace that truth, and, and may that truth cause transformation in us today. As I prayed earlier, Lord, those who don't know Jesus, I pray that they would come to know Jesus this morning, that they would find redemption through his invitation, that their hearts would be made new, that they would be cleansed, that your righteousness would be upon them, and that those who do know you, Lord, I pray that you would remind them with the beauty of, redemption, uh, of your redemption, that you would remind them that you have passionately pursued us, that you have made a covenant with us based on your faithfulness. And that is a promise to us. God, as we continue our time of worship and we move into a time of tithes and offerings, God, may this be a result of transformation. May we give abundantly, cheerfully, and sacrificially. 
so that your gospel would be advanced, and more so, so that we would be transformed into the image of Christ. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.